Welcome to the Autism Mom MD podcast, where we discuss empowerment, growth, and inclusion for individuals with autism. And now your host, Dr. Carol Balthazar. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. B. Welcome to the Autism Mom MD podcast. On today's episode, we're going to college. My guest today is Angie Aldridge. Angie is a College Disability Support Services Advisor and Behavioral Intervention Team Member. She has a master's in clinical community counseling and serves as a council member on the Maryland Developmental Disabilities Council, Sparks Community Advisory Committee, Columbia University Stakeholder Advisory Committee, and numerous other committees and boards with the hope of improving the quality of life and services for people with disabilities. She's a writer and chronicles her family's journey on her blog, Mighty and the Bean. She's also the co-host of the podcast, Embracing Holland, a podcast dedicated to sharing how parents are doing life and creating amazing things as a result of their child's diagnosis. Please join me in welcoming Angie Aldridge. Welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Great to see you. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to where you are today? Sure. So my, um, my journey really starts, uh, like most of us, I think, when my son was diagnosed. Um, I had, before I had kids, I had gotten a master's in counseling and I was working in higher education. I worked at a college doing academic advising. I had done some career counseling and internship coordination and really loved working with college kids. And um, when I had, I have three kids, and when my son, my middle child, Mark, was diagnosed um, with autism, he was 20 months old, mm-hmm. and um, he was then followed, followed quickly by an SCN2A diagnosis. So we have a genetic cause for his autism. Okay. Um, so really, my pivot in, in sort of my journey with where I am now is uh, when Mark was little, we were driving him across the state to all of his therapies because we live in a part of the state in Western Maryland where there's not a whole lot of um, resources. Oh, so right, we had right. to drive to Baltimore and to you know other areas of the state far away. And so that put a strain on my job and my husband's job. And so um, I was really looking to do to shift gears a little bit. So then they became an opening at our college in disability support services. And I quickly moved into that because at the time it was part time and that allowed me to drive Mark to where he needed to go. So wow. it worked out really well. And then I ended up falling in love with it. And I've been doing it now for four years. And I, I just love it. That's so cool. So like, um, you said you have three kids. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Yes. So yeah. the, um, I mean, and just like juggling all of that, balancing work and the kids, that's like got to be so tough. And I can totally relate with that. Yeah. And it's, um, I think, tougher still and more complicated in pandemic world, right? So, you know, my my kids are ages nine, seven, and three. So, you know, it's, we're we're in the little kind of kid trenches right now. So we're dealing with at-home learning and trying to juggle all of those things. Right. How old was he when he was diagnosed again? He was 20 months. Wow, that's mm-hmm. so early. That's really good. 
Yeah. So wow. with, yeah, with Mark, um, we knew right away that uh, there was something up with him. So I know some, some people's story is that their child was developing normally, and then there was a regression and a loss of skills. That was never our story. Our story was that Mark um, was always slow to meet all of his milestones. Mm. So, you know, walking didn't come until after he was, you know, way past one. Um, he was almost two. Um you know, rolling over, sitting up, he had hypotonia, there was a lot oh, of other okay. things kind of going on. And so we right. noticed the physical things about him first before we started to really hone in on, well, he's not babbling, and he's not responding to his name. And you know, all those sort right. of classic things that you start picking up on. Right. So that's what led us to Kennedy Krieger when he was um, 15 months old. Okay, how long mm -hmm. did it take for him to be evaluated? Like, did, was there a waiting list or? No, I think because when you get them in really young and early, I, at least from what I've heard from other families and our experience, they got us in very quickly. I think I called in, let's see, August and mm -hmm. within, I think by December was our first start of appointment. So, you know, three, four months um, is That's not really good. Not bad. I mean, that sounds like an eternity to a parent who wants answers, but um, you know, we had gone and we were seen probably like November, December, and then we were referred to the center for autism and related disorders at Kennedy oh. Krieger. And wow. That's where we went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's actually really fast because you hear of stories that's like there's a year waiting list mm -hmm. or a year and a half. And I mean, I know that um, sometimes people like, you know, reschedule appointments and you can get in at the last minute. But in general, it's like it seems like there's a long waiting list to be seen. Yeah. And we were very fortunate. We got in very quickly and we put ourselves on cancellation lists. So it mm -hmm. was, you know, it was December going into January. There was some inclement weather. We didn't mind driving in it. And so we were able to get to the top of the list for some of those um, appointments. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about and celebrate the successes. Um, can you share with us some of those successes and what are the things you've done to help your son thrive? Sure. So we have had really good experience with therapy and providers being able to surround Mark with really great people. Um, I will say one of the best things that I did was get involved in the, what's called, you know, in Maryland, each county has um, a CCAC, a Special Education Citizens Advisory Committee. Mm -hmm. And um, as part of my job at the college, I was asked to start going to these meetings so that I can make a connection with special education in our county and oh. get the, you know, and kind of make that bridge over to the, you know, the college. Right. And so I started going, but of course I've got my mom hat on when I'm sitting in that table. Yeah. And I thought, Oh my goodness, like we really need to, there was only administrators in there. They were meeting during the daytime. So parents yeah. who worked couldn't attend. And so I started to see an opportunity to really kind of um, jump in and try to grow something. And so through that process, I met really incredible teachers and OTs and speech people. Wow. And I was able to, by the time my son was ready to go into school, because at that point he wasn't even school age yet. Um, I found a wonderful program in the County for him to attend for school. Uh -huh. I was able to find a magnificent teacher that he still has. And it was all through that networking kind of opportunity through CCAC that I met her, realized that she had an incredible passion for teaching and she's excellent at what she does. And so that was probably like the biggest win from participating in that was that I was able to, you know, find Mark's dream teacher. And yeah. so, you know, that was great. Um, we've done music therapy. Mark was nonverbal. 
uh, at age four. He was in preschool okay. and he loves music. So I thought, let's try music therapy. We, music therapist came in to do the evaluation. She comes in and she has a guitar. He points to the guitar, touches it and says, this is a guitar. Wow. This is a child oh who has said zero words. And his first, he says a sentence. It wasn't just one word. It was a whole sentence. And so everybody was blown away. And so music therapy opened up the floodgates as far as language for him. And so right. all of the concepts that he learns in school, the music therapist, not only does she see him for private therapy, but she goes into the school and does therapy through the school. And so a big win that we had is that the school system pays for music therapy. Really? Um, that is so mm -hmm. cool. I didn't even realize that. Yep. So it's considered oh. a, a covered service. Okay. Um, and so we were able to demonstrate that the only way for him to meet his IEP goals was through the, you know, the intervention of music therapy. So she pairs beautifully with, with the classroom teacher. So how do you find the music therapist? So that <laughs> we had gone to, um, it was an, a PT, OTPT speech. It was all uh -huh. the therapies uh -huh. and it was at our local hospital. And the OT said that music is like magic for Mark. And she had um, this newsletter that they had sent to the hospital and it had the music therapy company. It was Sonata. And so I just emailed her and I said, you know, do you, can we talk? And so she got connected with the school system. I think she might've already been in the school system, but yeah, we were able to get it approved on the IEP. And so he gets music therapy. That's amazing because um, that really says something about the importance of the arts um, mm -hmm. because for like, you know, music and just, you know, theater, because when my son was much younger, um, you know, he really enjoyed like drama and the theater and he got involved, but it's, it, you know, talking to him when he was younger, he's, he's an extrovert. He's like a social butterfly. He has Asperger's, but he's not like, you know, he doesn't shy away, but mm -hmm. it's like the socialization skills. So I got him involved in like, you know, doing like some plays and stuff. But I mean, when he would look at the scripts and like, you know, try to take on a character, it was just like, he was just so fluent. It was just yeah. so different. Like it just so natural. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like amazing. Like, you know, when I hear like what you said about music therapy and I think oh, about yeah. the importance of like fine arts. Well, and it's also, you know, thinking about what your child, what makes them come alive, right? Mm -hmm. What, what yeah. you see like spark inside of them. So you're talking about your son with theater, like that's what it is for Mark. I mean, right now his latest obsession is Hamilton. Like, so we just uh -oh. have the, the <laughs> right. musical Hamilton playing all the time because for whatever reason, you know, music just speaks to him in such a beautiful, poignant way. And so we knew this was going to be a method. Now there's things like art therapy, but my son, Mark hates art. So uh -huh. that, that would not be, you know, right. a modality that we would um, seek, you know, to try to draw anything out in terms of, you know, language or, or anything right. like that. But yeah. right, you, you got to focus, every child is different and you focus on their strengths and build mm -hmm. on their weaknesses. So yep, exactly. Um, well, how has autism changed you? I know you're really involved in the advocacy world. So how'd you get into that? Sure. So we trying to think like, it really stemmed from getting into um, CCAC, like I mentioned before. Okay. And um, it was a lot of just seeing such a need to be a voice for people that didn't have a voice at the table or that couldn't. So, mm -hmm. you know, I looked at like a lot of the parents, um, you know, that have children in special education, they are juggling 
their, their kids' therapies, special education, their job, other children. Like it was hard for them to have capacity to then add advocacy on yeah. top of everything else. Right. And so I saw my role in CCAC as an opportunity to really try to be the voice for families who didn't have the capacity to, to work in that way. Um, and so then, you know, through the course of time, like when my son got his a diagnosis of SCN2A, which was his genetic mutation, mm-hmm. um, I joined the board for, a, you know, a year or two um, just to raise funds for research. And I found that as a parent of a child newly diagnosed, there was this big grieving process. Right. And right. to get it, you know, through that, I had such intense grief that I had to take that intensity and translate that into work, right? Mm -hmm. And into doing something. I couldn't just sit back and watch my son sit through speech and OT and PT and special ed and not improve and get better. I, you know, it was almost like while he was developing and at his own rate, I had to be busy doing something. Yeah. So that might, yeah. So I took my intensity and of grief and really funneled that into planning color runs to raise research funds um, for, you know, his diagnosis. Um, We did uh, resource fairs through CCAC and, you know, any, anytime you volunteer on one thing and you probably know this, you get asked to then serve on a whole bunch of other things. And so for a while I just kept saying yes and yes and yes and yes. And now I feel like I've moved into a season of saying, okay, let's rein it in. Like, Uh you know, right. So it really was me needing to focus my energy in a way that felt like I was making a difference when it, when in reality, it, it, my reality at home was I was waiting for Mark t- to let us know how we could help him. Right. Well, ba- so with the CCAC, do other states have a CCAC or is it, do you, is it called something else? You know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I, yeah. I definitely know like Maryland, every county is supposed to have one. They have a budget through um, MSDE, Maryland State Department of Education. Um, and it's supposed to be, you know, sort of governed by parents of children with disabilities. Mm, okay. Um, and it's an opportunity for parents to give their input and their feedback and shape special education. It's, it's their pipeline. Um, right, right. But yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure, like, you know, thinking about surrounding states near us, I'm not sure. Right, right. There are. Yeah. Right. Because that would be great if like, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, with the internet now, you could, you could like look that up and like just Google or maybe check Facebook yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's dive into today's co- topic, which is college. Um, in 2020, the CDC estimated that about one in 54 children in the United States has been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. This is a 10% increase from last year last report two years ago, and it makes the highest prevalence since the CDC started tracking ASD in 2000. Two years ago, it was estimated that about 500,000 kids with ASD would be transitioning into adulthood over the next decade, and that about 45% of them would be enrolling in a university, college, or technical vocational school in the coming years. Um, Digging deeper, more than half of young adults with ASD don't go to college after high school. And even though 35% of them um, try to get into college later, most of them don't get admitted. Or if they get admitted, they end up dropping out. Um, Looks like the success of the college ASD student depends on support services that go beyond the classroom. Angie, my son is about to start his sophomore year at a university in a couple of weeks. And I'm so glad you're here to share your expertise on this. Um, 
So for those just starting the college application process on the college application, um, what do you think? Should the student say that he or she has a disability? I mean, does it affect his or her chances of getting into that school? So that's a really good question. And just so that families who are listening know in that colleges, first of all, should not be asking about a diagnosis on an application um, that that's not a, okay. Um, so, um, but as far as if the student, you know, whether it's in an essay or, you know, wants to talk about their diagnosis, that is entirely up to the student and how comfortable they feel with their diagnosis. And, and mm-hmm. so because I've worked with so many college students over the years, I have ranges of students who um, really, you know, are like self-advocates and they're really great about wanting everyone to know what, what autism is or whatever their diagnosis is. And then I have other students who are incredibly private and don't feel comfortable sharing that information. So I would just say in terms of um, if a student should disclose or not, um, on the application itself, um, they can if they feel comfortable. The way our college does it is that we send out an information request form with every application. So to every student, you're going to get an information request form from the Office of Disability Support. Oh, okay. So the way that works is that if you do happen to have a diagnosis and you apply and you get that form, you can send that back. And so the admissions office is going to get that form. They're going to forward it to our office. So you can self-identify in that way. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. my son ended up saying, you know, talking about his um, Asperger's and his essay. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've always taught him like, you need to embrace this because when you're, you know, it's a lifelong diagnosis. It's not like just because Mm -hmm. you turn 18, it's done, you know, it's like, yeah. (laughs) So, well, if a kid has an IEP or an individualized education plan or a 504 plan in high school, does the student automatically get the services in college? Yeah, but it comes with a caveat there. So our college will accept an IEP as documentation. Some colleges won't, but after the Amendments Act that was passed in 2008, there was a big shift and change that said that students didn't have to go to great lengths to document their diagnosis. Hmm. So most colleges now will accept a copy of an IEP or a copy of a 504 plan as sufficient documentation. Okay. Got it. Well, so my son, um, for those parents that have kids in private school, so my son went to Catholic high school, there was no IEP or 504. But Mm -hmm. I think what we did was we just like gave them a copy of the accommodations that he was getting. So uh, Mm -hmm. I guess that's how some some people would do it if their kids go to private school. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's a really good point. So well, what's the usual documentation that um, people applicants would need to uh, turn in during the process? I mean, would you need to get a new evaluation, neuropsychological eval, like during your junior year or something or in high school? So that's a re- that's also a good question. So um, the neuropsych eval can be really helpful because the psychologist can provide recommendations that maybe the student and the family has not thought about. So they're going to be able to do in-depth testing like the community college where I work, we don't have a staff psychologist. So testing is not available okay. on site and, and you're really not going to find that at community colleges. But at four-year schools, 
I don't think that's also a norm, but they may have more resources to be able to do that. So if a student wants to have that testing, we're going to have to refer them out. And a lot of times insurance may not cover that. So it's a, it's, it's a hefty yeah. expense out of pocket, but that evaluation can be useful in that I like, for instance, last fall, I had an incredibly thorough neuropsych eval for a student. And on that evaluation, it said, during emergencies, such as, you know, in, in, a, in the event of like an active shooter or a situation where there, you would have to lock down a building, the psychologist mm-hmm. put that the student would not know um, that there was danger, that he would be, have to be guided and given direction oh as to what to do. That instinct wouldn't kick in. And I would, I would never know that had I not had yeah. the, the psych evaluation to, to review that. And so that led me to thinking, okay, we need to be thinking about this for other students. But psychologists right. will include information in that evaluation that's incredibly helpful to disability offices that it'll, it'll glean information because it's over the course of lo- much longer time. They're going to be spending with the mm-hmm. student. They're going to be doing tests. Testing, we're not going to get all of that information out of a student during, you know, a 30 to 60 minute intake appointment. So, right. No, so the answer is no, they don't have to, but if they want okay. to, it could be quite helpful in shaping the support and the services. But in terms of documentation, um, most colleges will accept the IEP or the 504, but they can also accept a letter from a provider. So a medical provider, a counselor, a psychiatrist, psychologist, as long as it has the student's information, their diagnosis, and it's signed by the provider. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, if you're a pa- you know a parent and your child is a sophomore, it's like, okay, should I really, it's different when you have a kid, I think, who has, you know, special needs. And, you know, it's like, you're always like planning further ahead. Mm -hmm. So it's like what I remember when he was like a freshman and sophomore, I was already thinking, okay, do we need a new, another test in like in junior year, the next year, because you have to take into account, like, you know, how long does it take to get an appointment, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Always thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, what kind of services are available at a disability resource center? I mean, what is the difference between high school versus college in terms of services? Well, the major difference that I always explain to families is that in high school, so if you had an IEP in high school, it is the responsibility of the school to make sure that those accommodations that you have are met. Um, So if you get extended time or you get, um, you know, taking tests in a separate location, let's say, it's up to the school to make sure that those two things are happening the responsibility in college shifts to the student and away from the school. So in Mm -hmm. college, it becomes the student's responsibility to be that self-advocate, to make sure that they're getting that extra time to request the accommodation. So in, you know, in high school, it's on the school to identify the need and to identify, you know, what the supports are. It it flips in college. And so, you know, that is different. And so I have to do it like today I did five intakes and it was a lot of coaching of now it's your responsibility to make sure that each of your professors are aware of your what your accommodations are. So even though we send the forms to the instructors, we still say Mm -hmm. you have to make sure if you want extra time, if you're getting double time on this final, you have to make sure that they're entering that time. So that responsibility shift is is kind of a, a wake up call for families who have been used to the student just getting the services. Um, Yeah. Another thing that comes up a lot is that students are often who are used to using like a resource room 
Um, so in high school, they were able to go to like a room if they needed to calm down or regroup or get help with something. A lot of times, especially I can speak mainly to the community college experience, um, we don't have that type of support for students specifically, you know, with disabilities. We have tutoring center that they can go and get help, but we don't have anything like specialized for that. So um, the other thing is content and curriculum. So sometimes in high school, the content is modified for the student based on their needs, or um, mm -hmm. sometimes I've seen students be given uh, multiple choice on, on, on all tests, you know, like different types of test formats. And so a lot of that content, if it um, deviates from what the instructor is trying to measure for the course, we can't authorize that type of accommodation. So we can't make as much like in terms of differences with the content. So that's it. Okay. The differences. Well, I mean, I could totally, I mean, my son just, you know, he started his freshman year last year and I went through that grieving process of like, oh my gosh, I have to let go. But he was like so excited and wanted to live in the dorm and, you know, sleep late, wake up late, all that stuff. And, you know, the thing is, is that when they go to college and they're 18, they're an adult now. And you mentioned that earlier. And so as a parent, what's our role? I was so used to like being so active, like advocating. And I, now I know like, you know, he has to take over that role. But like, what if I have questions? I mean, what's okay to ask the disability resource advisor? I mean, I, I understand like there's confidentiality issues. So I just, you know. Yeah. So a release form is going to be your best friend. So, um, you know, if a parent wants to speak to anybody at the college and that including faculty or the disability office, um, they'll need to fill out a release. The student themselves will need to sign it, authorizing that the college is able to speak to parents or guardian or anyone else in their life. The way our process is, we have a release form for our specific office so that we can talk to parents about accommodations, academic performance, that type of thing. Um, but we also have mm. a general release for the entire institution. So they can choose, the student can then check off, do I want them to be able to speak to financial aid? Do I want them to speak to my instructors, my faculty? Um, so they can make that choice. So every institution is going to have a different process for that. So I would encourage families, you know, at the onset, if you if you attend the intake appointment with the student, ask those questions so that, you know, there's no issues further on where, like, for instance, this semester, I had a student who was hospitalized, his parents were trying to get in touch with the mm. faculty, and the faculty wouldn't speak to them. So then I had to get the release to the family, get him to sign it, get him oh. to send back. So that's something really important to do, you know, right out the gate. But thinking about right. the role of the parent, I think that, even though you are transitioning into a time of letting go and letting them kind of, you know, make their own choices and mistakes, I think it's also really important to be supportive in a way that, you know, you're asking questions, you're encouraging them, but you're encouraging that self-advocacy. You're encouraging right. them to send emails to the faculty. Nothing is worse than having professors be emailed by parents when the student didn't make the first contact. So that's usually met with some apprehension, like why don't, why am I not hearing from the student? So I think the biggest role for parents is to really encourage the student to be advocating for themselves and to, and if, 
And sometimes that looks like in my office, I will write an email for the student, send it to the student and then say, you know, you can change the words around, but this is what it would look like to ask for what you're trying to ask for. Because that's a big stumbling block for a lot of students is being able first to ask for help and then how to ask for help. Articulating their needs can be very challenging for students, especially for students that have trouble with executive functioning. Mm-hmm. Well, when can a student request an accommodation? Like, especially now um, during COVID and there's no face-to-face instruction, I'm sure like for some students, their accommodations might change. And so, I mean, how easy is it to, or like, when can you ask or can you make that change or can you make that addition pretty quickly? Yes. So students can request, um, if they've already have a set of accommodations in place, they can always go back and say, I'm having trouble with this and talk to the disability office and say, this is a new problem. So for instance, like you mentioned COVID, that has presented mm-hmm. a whole bucket of challenges for a lot of students mm-hmm. where online learning is hard for them. So we have to think yeah. about, you know, let's talk through what specific challenges are you having? Um, And then we tailor what they're, you know, when you were asking me what types of accommodations are available, most disability offices that I've met and talked with are pretty creative. So we think about what the challenges are, what the hurdles are, and then how can we work together to come up with a good solution and put accommodations in place. So we can always change those. In terms of when to ask for accommodations, it's never too soon um, to do that. Okay. So if if you have a student going, I mean, right now um, we're in the middle of August, so it's it's prime time to be thinking about that for students starting in the fall. But you know, right. if you if your child is not, I've done intakes for families and their child wasn't starting until the following year. Um, that's fine. I would say it's always right. good to touch base right before the semester starts to make sure that, you know, if there've been any changes, we can update that. Um, but it's never too soon to begin talking about that transition and what that looks like and, and really start connecting with that disability office. Sure, sure. Well, what I've done for like my son, and I keep saying my son, because, you mm-hmm. know, this is all fresh right now, because he's the one who's going to college. But like, I told him, uh, uh, like, email your professors like a week or two in advance to let them know, like before class starts that you have a learning difference. And, you know, you have accommodations in place. I mean, is that what students should be doing like ahead of time? Or do they, or it's okay to just like, come into class and then tell the teacher afterwards? I mean, how do the, how do the professors find out that they have a student who, you know, has um, accommodations in place? So mainly there's a couple of different ways that they're notified. Um, You know, our institution will, we automatically email those forms during the first day of classes. So, you know, for your son, if he were, you know, at my college, each of his professors would get a copy of the accommodations um, automatically. Other colleges have it kind of where you go to the disability office, you pick up your forms, it might have like a carbon copy with it. They then take it to the instructor, the instructor signs, you know, and acknowledges maybe they have a conversation, and then they, the student keeps a copy of the form. And so there's a lot of back and forth. Years ago, that's how our office operated. You had to come to our office, Uh pick up your forms, have the instructor sign them, and then bring them back. So 
every college is different. I think a lot of us have moved to an electronic uh, fast means of, uh-huh. but we send them um, an email and I have students that are very proactive. I have a couple where we set up meetings with um, the parents and the student and the faculty before the semester starts so that we can, hmm. they can get to know the student and we can talk through what are some of the stumbling blocks? What are some things we can be doing right away to, to get support before there's a problem? I would say that that's not the norm. I I would say most students don't have that like formal meeting, but certainly an email a week or two before they can touch base with the instructor, but instructors are notified by the, by the college. Mm -hmm. Well, how often should a college student check in with their disabilities advisor? I mean, I know every kid is different, but like in, in general, like, well, and once your accommodations are set at a school, it, again, it depends on the school and what they, they decide to do. But for instance, our school, you don't have to come and talk to us again. Your accommodations are met. Oh. We don't have to revisit them every semester. As long as you're enrolled, we're going to send them out automatically. Now, other colleges have touch points where you have to check in with the disability office, whether it's once a semester or by a certain number of credits. It just, they want to like check in. So it really just depends on how they, they run their office. But in terms of what students do typically, or like what I see, I have some students that see me weekly because they need me to Mm. check in to make sure that they're getting all of their assignments met or keeping them on task because time management is a problem. But Mm -hmm. I would say most students I see once a semester um, because our office, not only do we provide disability support, we also do the academic advising so we can get our students signed up for classes too. And that's always helpful because we can talk about maybe which faculty members are going to be a better fit, um, you know, for their particular needs. Oh, okay. Got it. Well, well, in in terms of academics then, like, I mean, I guess every college is different, but like would students who have a disability or a learning difference, you know, um, in terms of applying for a class or registering for a class, do they get to kind of choose ahead of time or they, do they get to look at preview classes, you know, ahead of time? I wish that were the case. That would be lovely. <laughs> um, no, I mean, we have priority registration for our veteran students, um, but mm-hmm. our students with disabilities that, that just qualify through our office for that purpose, they register like everybody else. Um, like everybody but I, else, yeah. I recommend for all families, like register as soon as you possibly can so that you mm-hmm. get the first pick of the instructors. And I know a lot of students use ratemyprofessor.com. That's where you're going to get, you know, reviews of from other students of what they're like but your disability office is going to know who which faculty are the good ones to work with not necessarily like that are like the best teachers but maybe the ones that'll work for your individual needs yeah right right well do you have any advice on campus life like diet exercise you know socializing and you know keeping a schedule yeah so one of the things I always talk to students about is um, when I think about a big shift with college, I always ask students, do you use a planner? And usually I get a blank stare um, when I ask that question. And I say, it doesn't have to be a paper planner. It can be Google Calendar. It could be on your phone, something with phone alarms, but they have to get used to, to looking at the syllabus for each class. So that's usually something Mm. new that we talk about. And I've said to students, come in, come to my office. We'll sit down. We'll look at all of your syllabi for the semester. We'll look at all your deadlines so that if you're taking four or five classes and you're a full-time student, 
let's look at, do you have a test? Do you have a paper? Do you have a lab report? Are all these things due within the same week? And how can we pace ourselves and do that time management piece? Because a lot of success in college comes down to studentship, being able to be a good at being a student. And so that takes time okay. to learn that skill. So, right. you know, one, I would suggest using a calendar, but getting help if you get overwhelmed with deadlines. Um, and then the social piece is really important. And, you know, when you go to college, if it's on a residential, I think that there's just inherently more built-in opportunities for socialization. You've got, yeah. you've got the dorm, you've got, you know, where you're eating, you, you know, you've got more activities that are probably scheduled in the evenings because you have a captive audience. So I would suggest to students to try to get plugged in with things they're interested in. So a lot of colleges have clubs. They have a club fair usually in the beginning of the fall semester where they display all the different groups that they could be a part of. Go to that mm-hmm. club fair, see, where, find your people, you know? And so, right. Um, right. Even at a commuter campus, like where I work, um, we have, you know, a student activities office and student life. And so they do activities around, you know, if you've got time between classes, where are the spots where you can go and get plugged in? Um, so I would say find that common interest and see if there's a club. And if there's not, start a club. You might find other yeah, people yeah. that have that same interest. So, yeah, yeah. Well, when we, I remember when we were going through like um, l- checking out the different colleges, I mean, Campus Life, there's so many clubs. Yes. There's like so, I mean, there's oh, like yes. everything, Very, like a Harry Potter club. <laughs> very like so specific interests. Things. Yes. So if, if, if if you've got a student with a very pointed interest, <laughs> the odds are there's a club for that or they could start it. So, <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. That's pretty yeah. cool. I just wanted to ask you how many people graduate from college in just in general? Like, is, are there like newer data on like how many graduate on time and how many these students are able to get a job after college? So I did look up some, so I'm going to send you some links. So if you want to, if you oh, want to cool. include that, if you do show notes, um, yes, so I did awesome. find the, the national sort of overall graduation rate for all students. So not just students with disabilities, but all students is around 42%. That's the amount of students that actually, you know, matriculate, go through school, graduate, right? The students with disabilities are just slightly below that. It was like 38%. Mm. And so we find that same trend at the college where I work. Our graduation rate of our students is just slightly below. So it's really not that significant to the general population. It's surprising because you would think that, you know, given that you have additional need for support, you know, and of course, as you said earlier, you know, the students that require supports, if they don't get them, then obviously that's going to make it much more difficult to be successful. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to identify the need and to seek support. But yeah, the overall graduation rate for students with disabilities is just slightly below the the average. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, That's really like, you know, that's really a, you know, great news. You know, I didn't even know Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So what words of wisdom would you like to share with us and especially to the parents who have college-aged kids? So I would say that you have been spending the past 18 years advocating for your child. And just because they go to college doesn't mean that that advocacy has to stop. It just has to look different. And so, you know, what I see sometimes is I have parents that um, kind of, have been 
maybe like beaten down by the system. They're kind of tired of that, having to mm-hmm. fight for everything. And yeah. they'll get to us and you can tell they're worn out. They've been advocating at this for so long. If your child is going to college, congratulate yourself. You did something well, right? Like they did it. They made <laughs> right, it. Right. They're to, to, right, to the right. point. So what, you're, what you've done is, is wonderful and you've been successful. I don't think it's time to just completely pull the plug, but I also right. think that that intensity and the way that you had to go to those IEP meetings is different. It's not, it's going to look different in college. And so I think your best bet is to partner with the disability office, ask the questions. And so, you know, go to your, go to the intake appointment. Um, I know when I went to college, um, I didn't have any disabilities, but I remember my mom saying, it's on you. You're in college now. It's, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, and, yeah, me too. and it's like, you yeah. go do it. And so if that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. if that's the, the mentality, then great. But then when they get home, ask them some follow-up questions and make sure that, you know, they're asking the right questions. Cause I find that students have trouble knowing what to ask, feeling comfortable asking. And so if at the beginning, when you're getting this set up, if the parents either want to attend the intake, I think that's great. If they want to go to that first advising appointment, I don't see anything wrong with that. I know that the term helicopter parent is is thrown out there. I think there's a good way to be a helicopter parent. Yeah. I think there's a way to yeah. go and be supportive and encourage right. them and give them that platform that they can step off to be able to go to those appointments by themselves. Right, right. No, it makes sense. Well, that concludes our podcast for today. Thank you so much, Angie, for sharing your story, knowledge, and helping to educate and empower us. We wish you and your family all the very best. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Links for the statistics I cited earlier will be in the show notes. Stay well, and I will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Autism Mom MD podcast. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, spread the word, and leave a review on iTunes. For any questions, comments, or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear on the podcast, please join our Facebook group, Autism Mom MD, or visit us on the web at www.autismmommd.com.